This is District Sentinel Radio. It's that newscast of record for the left. I'm Sam Sachs. I am Sam Knight. Check out the website, districtsentinel.com. We're back doing a show after another long break. Uh, Apologies. It's a bit embarrassing. We've gone from having a strict schedule, a hard podcasting work ethic, to now just emulating Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's release schedule. Except we're not getting paid millions to release like four podcasts over the course of a year. If you want us to do that, though, and have (laughs) millions, now is your time to say something. Yes, now would be a good time to say something. Now, a lot's been going on. Uh, I moved. I'm no longer in D.C. I now live in Richmond. And uh, so Richmond north of Richmond. (laughs) Yes, I yes, I'm still slightly north of Richmond. So if uh, any of our listeners live in Richmond, I think they do, because I think, you know, we we did a show in Richmond several years ago. Arguably one of our best shows. It was. Yeah, it was a good show. Great crowd. Richmond's Richmond's a fun town. Yes. And I just moved here and uh, don't know many people here except for my mom. And (laughs) so, yeah, you know how to find me. Reach out. Uh, I am now your your new neighbor (laughs) in Richmond. Um, So, yeah, we've had a lot going on. You're in Richmond. So other people don't have to be. (laughs) <laughs> Virginia Sentinel now doing the the legislature. Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see about that. Um, point is, the you know, with the move and everything, we've been on hiatus. Other stuffs going on. Uh, SK is going to have an announcement at the end of the show that everyone's going to want to hear. Right, SK. Yep. Some uh, some personal news. We'll we'll get to that at the end. But we do have a full show for you today. We've got a return of an old friend in an old segment. Chip Chat's own Chip Gibbons is on the show. He's been covering the proceedings against Israel at the International Court of Justice. So we'll talk about that. And we'll keep it going for a garbage can ripped straight from those ICJ proceedings. That's coming up at the very end of the show. Couple reports from SK and I. See, uh, the last time we did this show, the Israeli campaign against Gaza was just beginning. And here we are more than 100 days later. And it's still going on with uh, a pretty unfathomable death toll that if you would have asked us when we did our last show, if it would be getting this bad. I would have been surprised to see it this bad. Um, But it's led to things like, as I just mentioned, the International Court of Justice finding it plausible that Israel is committing genocide. And the response to that in the last few days since this ruling is it hasn't seemed to deter Israel's actions in Gaza. And... It's only made the U.S. harden its position in support of Israel. And now the U.S. is just retaliating 
against the UN on the same day that the ICJ came out with its provisional measures calling on Israel to stop doing a genocide, uh, the U.S. came out and said it was defunding UNRWA, um, which is the main relief agency operating in Gaza. And the U.S. is suspending funding because of the actions of what were initially believed to be 12 members of UNRWA. Then it was lowered down to like six members of UNRWA who might have been also members of Hamas. UNRWA employs 13,000 people in Gaza. So that's an extremely low number, even if it's that, even if it's true, these people were 30,000, right? Is it 30,000? I could have sworn it was 30,000. It's definitely, it's in the five digits. Okay. So 12 divided by 10,000 is still a very small uh, fraction. A new standard that is obviously not going to be applied to the Israeli military when several of its members are posting TikTok videos doing war crimes. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the very fact that these numbers keep getting revised down um, speaks to the lack of credibility Israel has when making its accusations, which on their face are absurd. A bunch of Western countries joined the U.S. in suspending funding from UNRWA. Belgium did not. And in just the last few days, Israel bombed the Belgian aid office in Gaza. I have to say, sure, it's if, just if a you, mistake, though, right? Just just a errant missile. Yeah, if if you're making Belgium look good in the realm of historical atrocities, <laughs> you fucked up. Yeah, yeah, big time. Turning to uh, domestic affairs, a bipartisan border security bill that the White House is getting behind has been unveiled. Mm. Uh, It would uh, unleash tons of funding uh, to militarize the border or border agents, and it would give the executive more power to shut down the border in response to flows of migrants coming across. Um, Basically, let's pass legislation so that Biden can do the stuff that Trump did, but with legislative backing. Ironically, the thing that's stopping this bill is Trump saying, don't vote for it, telling Republicans not to vote for it because they don't want to give Biden victory on this as Biden's going around saying that he will shut down the border on day one that this bill is signed into law. So we we have to thank Trump for stopping Biden from being Trump temporarily until Trump is elected at the end of the year. Donald Trump, welcome to the resistance. (laughs) This is, is, man, this, this is just, I... You know, maybe this is the wrong way to view this. This is a very uh, narrow and maybe self-centered way of viewing this. I'm just thinking about how the election in November is not my problem. 
Buddy, tell me about it. I live in Virginia now. I wish I could uh, say that. Probably will say that still. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, like, what do you want me to do? I mean, like, you know, liberal boomers in my life who are inevitably going to, you know, if not directly to me, post on Facebook, like, we need to save democracy. Like, <laughs> what is that? What are we saving? What are we fucking saving? Four more years of supporting a genocide. Yep. Uh, on that topic, uh, one development since we last did a show, Ron DeSantis is no longer running for president. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, You know this. I've just been kicking myself because when the media was trying to hype up DeSantis... I went over to predict it and I saw that he was he was a, a 33 cent yes to win the nominee which means that you can buy a share of no for 67 cents and when he doesn't win the nominee it goes up to a dollar so you basically you know uh that that's a good return and that was I said, you know, I have I have a history of making incorrect predictions like Spain at the 2014 World Cup. I'll never I'll never be able to forget that one. But man, I nailed this. You know, I was like, it's free money. It's free money. Whoever wants this, it's yours. I didn't put any money on it. And quite frankly, I'm regretting that. Yeah. I mean, we as a podcast were pretty bearish on the DeSantis campaign from the start because we knew that he was a fucking weirdo and that people would immediately see him for being a fucking weirdo. But I still thought he would last a bit longer and that we might see more confrontations between he and Trump over who the biggest pedophile is. <laughs> so we were robbed of that, unfortunately. Um, now it's down to Nikki Haley and Donald Trump, but with South Carolina looming in about a month in which Nikki Haley will probably lose her home state by 20, 30, 40 points. Trump's going to be the nominee. He is. Unless, unless he dies. He dies. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you have to think of these when you these possibilities. I mean, he could go to jail, but market. I still think, yeah, he could go to jail, but I still think he'll be the nominee even if that happens. Eugene Debs. Um, yeah, and he probably will win. <laughs> um, I mean, the polling is just looking so awful for Joe Biden right now. And that the fact that there aren't panic alarms going off among Democrats, that holy shit, we might... Hell, let's just throw Kamala out there at this point that there isn't discussion about doing that. And I would I would I would vote for Kamala, actually, if it came down to it over Trump. <laughs> I don't think I could vote for Joe Biden at this point, but I would I would take a loopy president right now. We have we have one version of a loopy president who's loopy because they've gone senile. I will definitely take the loopy president who's loopy because they're on a strong cocktail of <laughs> drugs <laughs> yeah you know that now that i think of it when, when you start to give up hopes of uh presidential politics being a way of uh positively changing things like 
I would love Kamala press conferences. I would probably watch yes. the hell out of those. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, I I need to start watching more of her VP appearances because uh, you know they don't show. She doesn't get out much. They don't let her out much. Because you got she, you got to go to C-SPAN though. You know, like she gets the mushroom giggles every time she gives an interview. <laughs> She's micro dosing. <laughs> no, I don't macro think it's micro. Uh, but uh, instead, the Democratic Party dead-enders are rallying behind Biden, um, even as he's just shedding support from young people due to his policies in Gaza. Yep. Uh, Good luck with that strategy, guys. Again, not my problem. He He has <sighs> chosen to view me and you and everyone else we know and care about as... Uh, electorally unpalatable. Uh, he is going for centrists who, I don't know, maybe, I don't want to say he's definitely going to lose, but he's probably going to lose and he definitely deserves to lose. And he, he doesn't, he doesn't want my vote. So, you know, I have no, you know, I have a clear conscience about this. This is, this is not on me. It's not my problem. Social social movements, people. Social movements. That's how the world always changes. It's social movements, electoral politics, eh, maybe not so much. The CEOs of major social media companies testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee where they got shouted at for two and a half hours, which, hey, that's when Congress is at its best, when members are yelling at powerful business executives. The issue is how these companies protect children who use their platforms, which uh, not very well, well at all. They don't protect kids well at all. Studies have linked declining mental health among teens to the content, including paid ads that they see on social media sites like Instagram. There's also the exposure to and proliferation of child sexual abuse material by sickos on websites, especially Twitter nowadays, where they're protected by the company's CEO, or not CEO, well, both CEO Linda Yaccarino and owner Elon Musk. And then there are the other sickos who use these sites to prey on young kids. Um, we're all on these websites. We can't get enough of them, but let's face it, they're fucking cesspools especially for kids, just like a bar is, often full of weirdos. The difference is that unlike a local bar, which in most cases isn't encouraging them to come inside and selling the kids beer, unless the bar was cool. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Social media is bad because you can let kids in unlike bars, which are good because you can't let kids in unless you're a really good bar. (laughs) Then you let the kids in. Exactly, exactly. Um, But unlike bars, social media companies do derive a huge chunk of their revenue from kids using their websites. study published last December that examined the six major social media platforms estimated that in 2022, Annual advertising revenue from youth users, people between the ages of 0 and 17, 
was nearly $11 billion. And that, quote, approximately 30 to 40% of the advertising revenue generated from three social media platforms is attributable to young people. So it's the advertisers that are the customers, the kids are the product. And to make the product more attractive to the advertisers or the customers, social media companies collect tons of data on those kids, really all of us. This isn't just kids. This is how the industry operates. And that requires us all to be on these websites as much as possible, clicking on various shit, which is also good for advertisers, making us a more lucrative product. And to keep us on the websites, clicking and clicking and clicking, companies feed us algorithmically generated slop meant to make us laugh and cry and think, but also mad as hell and hateful and envious and anxious and depressed. That's the business model, generating, collecting, and selling data. Which means if Congress wanted to actually protect kids online and protect all of us for that matter, They'd prohibit social media companies from such intrusive data collection. And they'd use antitrust laws to limit the power of these companies to give users more options. But that's, of course, not what's happening. Instead, senators are working to advance a number of totally bipartisan proposals to encourage social media companies to collect even more data and to censor the internet, and to empower state attorneys general to be content moderators. For example, the Kids Online Safety Act, or COSA, which passed out of the Senate Judiciary Committee, would require companies to take more care to ensure minors aren't subjected to certain harmful materials, or else those companies might risk losing their liability protections. Those harmful materials include things related to anxiety, depression, eating disorders, substance use disorders, physical violence, online bullying and harassment, sexual exploitation and abuse, and suicidal behaviors. Now, it's been well documented in previous times that this approach has been tried, that this just leads to mass censorship. While it might work to limit kids from seeing material that might include eating disorders, It also blocks material that might seek to help them treat a disorder. Just to be safe, companies will delete a lot more content, even material that's in the public interest. It will also empower state attorneys general to determine if certain content is harmful. And if you know who any of these freaks are, then you know what a bad idea that is. For example, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is currently collecting medical records from around the country belonging to Texas transgender kids. These freaks, if they saw anything online directing kids to gender-affirming health care or any sort of counseling, they would move to have that stuff deleted under these laws. According to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, COSA, quote, would not enhance the ability of users to choose where they spend their time. Instead, it would shrink the number of options by making strict requirements that only today's largest, most profitable platforms could follow. It would solidify today's big tech giants while forcing them to collect more private data on all users 
it would force them to spy on young people, and it would hand government the power to limit what topics they can see and discuss online. It is not a safety bill. It is a surveillance and censorship bill. So, while it's good to hear CEOs get their teeth kicked in on Capitol Hill, it sucks that it's being done by lawmakers for all the wrong reasons. Like when Senator Mike Lee, a guy who's supposed to be a libertarian, attacked Mark Zuckerberg over the use of encryption on his platforms. And an encryption, as, as much as it can be, prove useful elsewhere, it, it can be harmful, especially if you're on a site where you know children are being groomed and exploited. If you allow children onto an end-to-end -end encryption-enabled um, app, uh, that can prove problematic. Ooh, what if the government needs to read those messages? Is there such thing as a single principal libertarian on this planet? One? Is there one principal libertarian? No, it's a clown ideology. Of course. It also quickly became clear that for several Republicans on the Judiciary Committee, they aren't interested in protecting kids. They want to wage an ideological war. While Twitter CEO Linda Yaccarino was mostly spared from the harshest questioning from senators, TikTok CEO Shuzi Chu, Shaozi Chu, sorry, Shao, not sure your name, but you're a big tech CEO. I don't really care. Uh, he was not spared. Uh, here he was getting red baited by Senators Cruz, Hawley, and Cotton. No, Senator, we, TikTok is not available in mainland China. We have moved the data into but, an American but TikTok infrastructure. is controlled by ByteDance, which is subject to this law. Now, you said earlier, you said, and I wrote this down, we have not been asked for any data by the Chinese government, and we have never provided it. I'm going to tell you, and I told this when you and I met last week in my office, I do not believe you. And I'll tell you, the American people don't either. If you look at what is on TikTok in China... You are promoting to kids science and math videos, educational videos, and you limit the amount of time kids can be on TikTok. In the United States, you are promoting to kids self-harm videos. And anti-Israel propaganda. Your app, unlike anybody else sitting here, and, and heaven knows I've got problems with everybody here, but your app, unlike any of those, is subject to the control and inspection of a foreign hostile government that has actively trying to track the information of whereabouts of every American that they get their hands on. Your app ought to be banned in the United States of America for the security of this country. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You said today, as you often say, that you live in Singapore. Of what nation are you a citizen? Singapore. Are Senator. you a citizen of any other nation? No, Senator. Have you ever applied for Chinese citizenship? Senator, I served my nation I'm in asked, Singapore. I, no, I, I did not. Do you have a Singaporean passport? Yes, and I served my military for two, two and a half years in Singapore. Do you, have any other, do you have any other passports from any other nations? No, Senator. Your wife is an American citizen. Your children are American citizens. That's have correct. You, have you ever applied for American citizenship? Not, no, not yet. Okay. Have you ever been a member of the Chinese Communist Party? Senator, I'm Singaporean. No. Have you ever been associated or affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party? No, Senator. Again, okay. I'm Singaporean. As a kid, did Tom Cotton watch clips of Joseph McCarthy and be like, I want to grow up and do that. That's what I want to be when I grow up.
Yeah, it was either uh, Joseph McCarthy or uh, William Calley, the uh, My Lie massacre guy. CEOs were accused of having blood on their hands. At one point, Mark Zuckerberg addressed the families of victims of sexual violence and apologized for whatever role his network might have played in facilitating it. It was embarrassing for most of the witnesses, but at the end of the day, they walked out of there with no real threat to their business model, which is spying and data collection. Our first episode touched on the issue of Israeli genocide in Palestine, which might have caused some of you to say, you two morons also live on stolen land in a racist country, as if we somehow like this shit. As if we're somehow wedded to the idea of the United States of America needing to exist in perpetuity. Also, it's extremely hard to emigrate anywhere else as a U.S. citizen. Yeah, it's just it's just one of those things where like, you know, Zionists will be like, you're American. Why? What are you like? Yeah, we're criticizing our own government that's helping you do genocide and our own government is doing genocide at home. Yeah, it's perfectly consistent, fucko. Uh, anyway. I've, I've, I've looked into this, and it turns out that technical skills of podcasting aren't exactly the most desirable things that other countries are looking for in a foreign worker. Oh, right, yeah, for you. Well, you know, you need to make that uh, golden visa money <laughs> doing a podcast. Maybe... Maybe you just need to do a, a grind set hustle hustle culture podcast to make that money where you can um, where you can immigrate or I don't know mega millions. Anyway, give me some ideas. We'll discuss at the end of the show. <laughs> so, with that pre-segment rant out of the way, today we are discussing the genocide against indigenous people in the United States, specifically how it's still ongoing, and efforts to resist it. If there's anything liberals love, it's trying to get credit for simply recognizing a problem they helped cause. In recent years, this has manifested itself among other forms in land acknowledgments. As we begin this program, we want to acknowledge the land we are on is native and was stolen from people who lived here for thousands of years. Together, we recognize their unbreakable connection to this land and we honor their resilience and the hope of their ancestors and the hope of future generations. The Buffalo Bills are proud to honor the past and celebrate the future for Native American Heritage Month. In and around New York State, there is a rich shared history with Native American people. The Buffalo Bills acknowledge this land as the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee people. These have become in vogue in the United States, and if I had to take a guess why, I'd say it's because of the emergence of a movement with slightly more radical aims that wants the logical conclusion of acknowledging historical theft. They want the land back. The land back movement, or at least the motivation behind it, is as old as the colonization of the Americas itself. In its modern form, land back traces its origin to the start of last decade, 
and appears to have gone viral in 2018, thanks in part to the social media of Arnell Tailfeathers, an indigenous Canadian member of the Nitsitapi or Blackfoot Confederacy. Tailfeathers set the internet alight while dunking on the avatar of Western liberalism in the Trump era, Justin Trudeau, Canada's prime minister since 2015, a man who is so liberal he once joined a protest against his own government's energy policy. Um, you could hear protesters also chanting as he walked by. There were some chants of no more pipelines, no more pipelines. There was one protester that was following uh, the uh, security detail around the prime minister, uh, chanting that he is a climate criminal. So a little bit of uh, tension, I would say, in the streets of Montreal. Trudeau's energy policy and his claim to support indigenous people were described by Tailfeathers in a 2018 interview with the CBC. Quote, I know some people would describe it as further colonization. It's weaponized against us for pipelines and other natural resources that Canada wants to get at. In other words, the sitting head of state most closely associated with blackface just might be a little bit racist. Here in the U.S., you'd have known exactly what Tailfeathers was talking about if you followed one of 2016's biggest stories, the Dakota Access Pipeline struggle led by the Standing Rock Sioux. It all started with some people being considered more expendable than others. From Minnesota Public Radio, quote, the, the Dakota Access Pipeline was originally proposed to run about 10 miles north of Bismarck, North Dakota, crossing the Missouri River. This route was rejected in the Army Corps of Engineers environmental assessment due to its close proximity to public drinking water sources, multiple conservation easements, and residential areas. Side note here, Bismarck is 90% white. The alternate path still crossed the Missouri River, NPR continued, under Lake Oahe, just over a half mile north of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe Reservation's border, upstream from water intake structures the tribe uses for drinking water, end of quote. The pipeline also crossed sites sacred to the Standing Rock Sioux near Lake Oahe, which is a reservoir on the Missouri, and the tribe argued that the crossing would violate Article 2 of the Fort Laramie Treaty, which guarantees the tribe, quote, the undisturbed use and occupation of reservation lands. With all this in mind, the Standing Rock Sioux organized a protest encampment against the Lake Oahe crossing in the spring of 2016, attracting support from all around the country and around the world from indigenous and non-indigenous people alike. By the fall, the protesters faced state violence that harkened back to cops in the Deep South brutalizing black people, demonstrating for their civil rights. These people are just threatening all of us with these dogs. And she, that woman over there, she was charging them and it bit somebody right in the face. And then it charged at me and tried to bite me. And she's still, they're still threatening these dogs against us. And we're not doing anything. Authorities are using more aggressive measures against protesters in North Dakota. Protesters against the Dakota Access Pipeline were doused with water during sub-freezing weather Sunday night. At least 17 were taken to the hospital. Some were treated for hypothermia. No, we don't have water cannons. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know where that the, the term water cannon comes from. This is just a, uh, uh, a fire hose. 
but protesters accused police of dangerous tactics, not just the spraying, but firing concussion grenades, rubber bullets, and injuring hundreds of demonstrators. The father of Sophia Lewanski, a 21-year-old protester, says an explosion nearly cost his daughter her arm. Sophia is undergoing surgery. President Obama tried to help, but not a lot. Being a typical lib, he walked back his administration's initial support of Dakota Access after the project was well underway, with the Army Corps of Engineers blessing and people being brutalized in North Dakota. But President Trump had no complicating feelings on the matter, and his election undoubtedly dealt a blow to the anti-Dakota Access movement. The Lake Oahe crossing would be completed, and by the summer of 2017, the pipeline was operational. But the Standing Rock Sioux are still fighting, and they scored a victory while Trump was still in office. In March 2020, a federal judge ruled that the Lake Oahe crossing was completed without the environmental impact assessment required under the law, and by February 2022, the company behind Dakota Access Energy Transfer had exhausted its appeals when the Supreme Court, surprisingly to me, declined to hear the case. Now, back to the bad news. The oil is still flowing, despite the order, and it has the Standing Rock Sioux very worried, to say the least. This is from Truthout, quote, Within its first year of operation, Dakota Access leaked at least five times, though most of the leaks were minor, the biggest was a 168-gallon leak near the pipeline's endpoint in Patoka, Illinois. Tribes fear that even minor spills could have large consequences. Chase Ironize, an attorney for the Lakota People's Law Project, who was raised on the Standing Rock Reservation, told Truthout, quote, Our lives are not the same anymore. We're worrying about that every single day. Every single day, people are in the back of their minds wondering if they're going to get a call saying the oil is leaking underneath the water. The Army Corps and Energy Transfer say they'd be able to contain it and so forth, but for us, that's the end of the world, Iron Eyes added. For us, we would probably have to move away from the Standing Rock Reservation. Who would want to live there with oil spills and cancerous water all around you? Also on the bad news front, in September, the Biden administration released an environmental impact assessment for the Lake Oahe crossing. And unsurprisingly, it looks like this is a box checking exercise for the Biden administration more than a challenge to Energy Transfer's project. For one, the consulting company hired by the Army Corps to perform the assessment, Environmental Resources Management, is a member of an influential oil industry trade group, the American Petroleum Institute. Secondly, the Corps did its best to mute the effect of public comment sessions by forcing those who wish to speak at the venues, quote, to do so orally in a curtained way with a stenographer or do so in writing at tables, in the words of the Associated Press. Corps spokesperson Steve Wolf told the AP, quote, I understand the fact that some people want to be performative and to try to create some kind of fanfare in front of an audience of people, but that's not the spirit and intent of the law or the meeting. Finally, the Army Corps also kept critical information secret when releasing its environmental impact statement. A particularly egregious example, the, Nat the Natural Resources Defense Council noted, is the information on modeling of the worst-case oil spill, much of which has been redacted, 
so that the model predictions cannot be independently verified. Energy Transfer, unsurprisingly, isn't too worried about the future of Dakota Access. Executive Chair Kelsey Warren said in late January, quote, we're not affected by the environmental impact statement. They're certainly not going to shut us down. Versions of the struggle are playing out all over the country. In Minnesota, the Ojibwe are fighting the Line 3 replacement project proposed by Canadian energy company Enbridge to take oil from Alberta's tar sands to Superior, Wisconsin. The project itself has its genesis in company disasters and a settlement with the U.S. Department of Justice to replace dilapidated Enbridge pipeline that led to two major oil spills, including one of the largest inland spills in U.S. history in the summer of 2010, when up to one million gallons of oil flowed into the Kalamazoo River. Ojibwe critics of the replacement project have argued that it's not actually a replacement, it's an entirely new route for the pipeline, and it violates 19th century treaties in which the U.S. government granted the Ojibwe hunting, fishing, and gathering rights in lands they gave up. Tara Hauska, a tribal activist and lawyer, told The Guardian, quote, it's a perpetuation of cultural genocide. Then there's the Mountain Valley Pipeline, or MVP, which traverses the Virginias and could snake into North Carolina if an extension is approved. According to Appalachian Voices, an environmentalist group, MVP has found native artifacts in southwest Virginia and just extracted them from the ground where they had been for hundreds of years and moved them, not following best practices for treating historic indigenous sites. MVP also undercounted the number of indigenous burial mounds along the pipeline's route, according to critics, and some of the artifacts uncovered near these burial mounds are 10,000 years old could build a stronger understanding of an ancient culture erased by settler colonialism. These pipelines, of course, could not be built without the approval of property owners granting easements along the way. And that brings us back to land back and the very nature of the United States of America. As indigenous activist and writer Nick Estes noted, quote, the word sovereignty, the notion of land back, these are things that preceded 1960s movements, the American Indian movement, and the Red Power movement. And there have been some recent noteworthy victories for the land back movement. According to Dakota Lakota writer and lawyer Ruth Hopkins, in 2020, an act of Congress restored 11,760 acres of Forest Service land to a trust for the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe. The Esalen tribe purchased two square miles of their land back for less than $4.5 million in California. In 2021, the Passamaquoddy tribe raised $355,000 to purchase their ancestral land on Pine Island in Maine. And the Karak and Yurok tribes of the Pacific Northwest won a land reclamation victory with orders to remove dams on the Klamath River. In January 2022, a conservationist group, Save the Redwoods League, bought 523 acres of forest in Mendocino County, California, and gave it to the Intertribal Cinquione Wilderness Council. There have also been solidarity networks sprouting in recent years, seeing non-indigenous people make regular contributions to help fund land reclamation, like the Sogoriete Land Trust in the San Francisco Bay Area, and Real Rent Duwamish in the Seattle area. 
If you're listening to this and thinking this is kind of charity, this sort of treats symptoms instead of causes like capitalism and settler colonialism, well, guess what? So do indigenous activists. And we will all suffer, as indigenous people have, if social relations governing land use remain unchanged. As Nick Tilson, head of Indian Collective, told Hopkins, quote, we have to recognize that under the management of the federal government and colonial governments everywhere, all of this land has been mismanaged. It has been destroyed, Tilson continues. It's been mined, polluted. It's been used for corporations as a playground to make money off of this land, pollute the waterways, and contribute to the growing problem of global climate change. As I mentioned at the top of the show, a little over a week ago, the UN's International Court of Justice ruled that it was plausible Israel is committing a genocide in Gaza. The case was brought by South Africa, which argued Israel was not fulfilling its obligations under the Genocide Convention. And by large majorities, the justices found South Africa's case had merit and that the court had jurisdiction. The case will now proceed. But in the meantime, the court also ordered the Israeli government to take a number of steps to ensure it's not in violation of international laws against genocide. And it probably won't surprise you to learn that Israel has not complied with any of those measures yet. Our next guest followed the proceedings closely for Jacobin, and he's a familiar face, or should I say voice, around these parts. It's Chip Gibbons. Chip Chat is back. Hello, Chip. It's we good have to have to you on the show. The old Muppet Theater. We've we've come together to uh, put on a show to save the old. That's what this feels like, right? You know. Yes, the the Getting prophecy the is fulfilled. Um, yes. So the the ICJ ruling was a decisive win for South Africa, but still a lot of. Western media outlets seized on the fact that the ICJ didn't order a ceasefire, which was one of the provisional measures requested by South Africa. In your coverage of uh, the proceedings in which these provisional measures were issued, uh, you noted that, quote, while the ICJ did not explicitly reject the call for ceasefire, it omitted its mention. What what do you think the court was thinking as it was going through this to where it didn't even want to address that fact? Well, I, I think it's worth looking at what the court has done in the past. And there, there's a couple of things to point out here. In the, in the big genocide case, uh, Yugoslavia v. Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina asked for sort of identical language uh, as South Africa did what's being described as a ceasefire. Technically, the language is for Israel to cease all its military operations um, because, you know, Hamas is not a party to the ICJ, so you, you can't impose a ceasefire on them. But they had agreed to respect one. So when 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 such actions were requested against Yugoslavia and Slobodan Milosevic, uh, the ICJ similarly did not grant them. So why does the ICJ not touch a ceasefire? Um, again, in, in the most analogous cases here with defendants or people who are far less liked than the Western political system than 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 Israel, I think it's I think it's uh, 
not controversial to say Slobodan Milosevic had a had a different relationship to the international order than than, than Israel does. Uh, they acted pretty similarly. The thing that people will point out is that they did order as a provisional measure for Russia to cease its actions in Ukraine. Uh, that's the only exception here, and you know they have a convoluted legal reason for this. You could you can reject it or accept it. Um, I'm just I'm just telling you what it is. And that was that because Russia had predicated its intervention in Ukraine on the genocide convention and the court declared there was nothing within the genocide convention you could use to intervene in another sovereign state, which really undermines the whole Western idea of uh, humanitarian inter uh, intervention. But I will I will table that. Uh, so, so in that case, they did do that, but fairly standard. Um, they they have not been willing to do this to Slobodan Milosevic. So I, I wasn't expecting them to do this to Israel. And I simply, I don't think even the South Africans were expecting this. I think the court probably ruled beyond what any of the folks who were optimistic and and and, and knowledgeable about the process were hoping for. I, I do know there became this sort of social media narrative. Uh, either ICJ vindicates Israel, which is not true. If you watch that 37-minute proceeding, they did not vindicate Israel even a little bit. Uh, or ICJ is no different than Biden. I saw that take a lot, which was... This is why we don't get legal analysis from Twitter, I guess. Well, that, uh, I guess to, to be that... fair, though, that take is also the Biden White House in which Kirby was asked about the ruling. And he basically said, oh, well, we, we're on the same page as the ICJ. We're, we want to see and an end to hostilities, too. I can tell you why that's bullshit. <laughs> um, I know Israel is saying that, too. So the ICJ, because everyone is like, oh, they told us to just comply with the genocide convention. Of course, we apply with the gen comply with the genocide convention, which I will note the Israeli judge voted against that provisional measure of uh, the comply with the genocide convention. Israel, so like the ICJ doesn't just sit around and be like, "What are we going to do?" Ah, let's tell Sam Sachs don't do genocide, right? You know, everyone knows Sam Sachs is not doing genocide. Let's 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 tell him don't do genocide in order to issue a provisional measure. The court has to find a number of steps first. They have to find they have jurisdiction, that there's a dispute to the meaning of the Genocide Convention or its application. Uh, they have to find plausible, plausible that a party is engaged in plausible conduct that contravenes the convention, that there is um, irreparable harm to rights under the convention that are being done, and that there is urgency. So in order to say Israel don't violate the Genocide Convention, they have to first find that Israel plausibly is engaging in conduct that violates the convention. They have to find that there are rights under the convention that irreparable harm will be will be done to without these measures. It's not just I mean, they do do advisory rulings, but this isn't an advisory ruling like, hey, kids, don't do genocide. This is yeah. we think it's plausible you're doing genocide and if we do nothing the situation is urgent and will result in irreparable harm to people's rights under the genocide convention and the and the court um, also to be clear explicitly stated in its order 
Israel stop killing civilians, which it cannot do in practice without some sort of without some sort of ceasefire and rethinking its strategy. That's the position of Cory Bush, Rashida Tlaib, the South African foreign minister, and the um, and the UN special patrol on the occupied Palestinian territories. I would say those four people are correct. I, 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 the ICJ, I think a lot of people think of a ceasefire and that weird international law community as a political, not a legal maneuver. Obviously, the three of us know the distinction between law and politics is arbitrary and not really accurate. But, but people who rise to the level of, you know, State Department bureaucrat running the ICJ believe that sort of thing uh, in, in their heart of hearts, I fear. Um, so it, it it is totally a a a a a blow to Israel. I mean, they spent thirty seven minutes reading through the casualty counts, reading through the people who were killed, and they also specifically read comments by the Israeli president uh, as an example of genocidal intent. Yeah, I, I, Isaac right? Herzog, who's it's, supposed to be a figure yes, on the they, the the liberal. He, I don't want to call it the Zionist left because there really is no Zionist left, but he is a, f- a leading figure of liberal Zionism. Pro genocide left, man. <laughs> the pro genocide left. The pro genocide left of a settler colonial outpost of like Western imperialism. I, I want to go. I want to go yeah. back to something else you touched on because it really does speak to what a total defeat almost total defeat for Israel this was at the court, which is the vote count was crazy. And you mentioned the the Israeli judge. So as you note in your, your piece for Jacobin, both sides of this dispute, South Africa and Israel, get to appoint one of the judges on the panel so that... I like... And, I'd like to appoint what a judge every time I but go the, to court. Is, but the, you know. the judge that the Israelis appointed voted against them. They're like, oh, no, shit. You guys are doing some serious <laughs> genocide <laughs> here. I don't want anything to do with this. His, his, his dissent was not released when when I wrote the Jacobin piece. Uh, it was released later in the day. And his arguments are really weird. Because, like I said, in order to issue a provisional measure, you first have to find that genocidal conduct is plausible. And he rejected the plausibility claim. And he voted against the Israel don't do genocide, Israel military don't do genocide uh, provisional measures which was strange, claiming Israel already has those obligations. Why he voted for the humanitarian aid and the um, punish incitement provisions, I don't, I don't. Should we maybe back up some and talk about what what the provisions uh, were? Yeah, um, yeah why not? Yeah, let's do that. Sure. So I believe they issued six six provisions. One of which was that Israel had to stop killing civilians, maiming and injuring civilians. Uh, creating conditions deliberately intended to prevent the sustainability of life, uh, creating conditions with the intent to stop bringing about births, mm. which I didn't talk about in my piece, but that's a part of it, in violation of the Genocide Convention, uh, which is technically known as the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. Then there was one, don't have your military do those things in violation of Genocide Convention. Then there was... Um, prohibit and punish incitement to genocide and the court specifically read out the president's comments and the defense 
uh, minister's comments when when making calling for that provision. Then there was lead and humanitarian aid, and then there was preserve all evidence of of the genocide for future proceedings. I see. And the Israeli judges voted. The Israeli judge voted against preserving the pre, preserving the evidence. I'm making exasperated look. <laughs> um, uh, he voted against. Um, uh, don't kill, maim, prevent births, bring about conditions and hospital to life in violation of the genocide convention, and don't have your soldiers do those things. But he voted for he voted for aid and um, incitement. Okay, so he. Well, I mean, the incitement the is the incitement is everything. undeniable, almost though, like because because when you hear the exact words, it clearly is incitement. Yeah, I guess like these. I saw I saw someone on Twitter claim that South Africa is trying to criminalize trash talk during. War. Oh, I heard that someone uh, someone said that it was anti-Semitic to criticize Netanyahu for calling Palestinians Amalek because that is disparaging the Old Testament, which you know is known for its humane treatment of of other individuals by by their fellow man. Um, so, um, I mean, there was one example that was brought up by South Africa and I, I detailed it in my first, uh, my first, um, first Jacobin piece that I, I want to go through. Cause I think this is like one of the, this one really stuck with me. Um, so they called up Ezra Yashin, who is the oldest, uh, reservist in, in Israel. He's 95 years old. They, they had him put on a uniform and give motivational like pep talks. Uh, you know how they would bring a like, used car dealer to like pep rallies on like homecoming day in your high school. Like they brought this guy to, to, to do this. Um, and he's a veteran of the Aryasin massacre yeah. where Zionist militias slaughtered an entire village. They raped women. They shot people against a wall. They tied people to tree. Like really, really awful They put babies stuff. in the oven. And, and- which is what they accuse Palestinians of doing. A lot of the stuff that they've accused the Palestinians of were carried out during the Nakba. And, and this isn't the only massacre of a Palestinian village during the Nakba or the only massacre of Palestinians during this history. But this has such symbolic importance because it's this is considered the event that caused so many Palestinians to flee from their homes and become refugees in the first place. Like this particular massacre has incredible symbolic importance internationally. It has incredible symbolic importance in the Palestinian psyche. So it wasn't just that they picked a veteran of a massacre. They picked the veteran of the massacre that stands as the symbol for all of the massacres and is attributed with the refugee crisis that continues to this day. So that's already bad. But would you like to hear what he said during his pep talk? Yes. Be triumphant and finish them off and don't leave anyone behind. Erase the memory of them. Erase them, their families, mothers and children. These animals can no longer be allowed to live. If you have an Arab neighbor, don't wait. Go to his home and shoot him. Which is, of course, what they did during the Nakba. But and what we've real- seen people doing now, in, uh, yes, especially yes, in the West yes. Bank. Um, no, yes, yes. I mean, we are witnessing pogroms in the West Bank. The uh, 
the court is still considering this larger question of whether or not Israel is committing genocide. That could take years. It will Um, take years. Does the fact that the court issued these provisional measures and in the week or so since they were issued, Israel has not changed its behavior at all. Is that going to influence the court at all? Or is is that just kind of the way? I mean, Russia, I mean, court- Russia didn't uh, follow any of the ICJ's provisional measures either. And, you know, there doesn't seem to be any consequence here. So... The court doesn't have an enforcement mechanism. The Security Council can enforce the court's rulings. Obviously, the U.S. will veto that. Right, but, but it probably doesn't any- help Israel's standing before the court if it ignores no. provisional measures like this when it comes to this larger verdict looming in a few years. No, if you read the Russian provisional measure order, um, they're very down on non-participation in their body. They're like, ah, oh, when people don't participate, like the U.S. in the merit phases of U.S. v. Nicaragua, it hurts our fact-finding abilities because the parties have important perspectives we need to hear. We deeply are disappointed that Russia did not participate because we really want to hear what they had to tell us and we could have learned from them. and It could have informed our decision. It's fascinating language. Um, it, it certainly will absolutely destroy Israel's uh, uh, image in the court of global public opinion and um, you know maybe not maybe not any more than Israel itself is already doing with its genocidal acts which everyone who cares to can watch every day on social media Uh, but the Israeli government seems pretty worried about this I mean they obviously put a lot of uh, time, effort, and resources into propagandizing and 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 pushing back on what is you know the truth of Israel being a genocidal apartheid state. The presentations of the South African lawyers were so incre- incredibly powerful. Of the testimony they gave, the comments they made. I mean, if I have a few minutes, I'd like to to read through some of them. Uh, when they were describing genocidal conduct, they said Palestinians in Gaza are subjected to a re- relentless bombing wherever they go. They are killed in their homes, in places where they seek shelter, in hospitals and schools and mosques and churches. And as they try to find food and water for their families, they have been killed if they failed to evacuate in the places to which they have fled. And even while attempting to f- flee alongside Israelis declared safe routes. And then on the urgency question, the daily statistics stand as clear evidence of the urgency and irreparable prejudice. On the basis of current figures, on average, 247 Palestinians are being killed at the risk of being killed each day, many of them literally blown to pieces. They include 48 mothers each day, two every hour, and over 117 children each day, leading UNICEF to call Israel's actions a war on children. On current rates, which show no sign of abating each day, three medics, two teachers, more than one UN employee, and more than one journalist will be killed. Many while at work or what appears to be targeted attacks on their family homes or where they are sheltering. The risk of famine will increase each day. 
There is no sanctuary. Every day, over 10 Palestinian children will have one or both legs amputated, many without anesthetics. On a current rate, an average of 3,900 Palestinian homes will be damaged or destroyed. And then there's a part, I'm going to skip a little bit. Um, Multi-generational families will be obliterated, and yet more Palestinian children will become WCNSF, Wounded Child, No Surviving Family, the terrible new acronym <laughs> born out of Israel's genocidal assault on the Palestinian population in Gaza. I mean, it was it sitting through the the, the South African presentation was really very difficult and they they said at the outset they were making a choice not to show a bunch of graphic videos i think they were preparing for israel to, to bring up the october 7 footage which was made privately available to the judges but they but they didn't they didn't play but we did see those images of people in mass graves and we heard those stories of, of children you know, having their limbs amputated, people being blown up in their homes, in their churches, journalists having their families killed. I mean, it is, it was horrible to sit through. I mean, I don't, I don't know how anyone sits through that and, and, and doesn't walk away, a walk away change. It, but in, um, back to the vote split issue, um, there were a lot of judges who on paper, you would have expected them to side with Israel. But after that pre presentation, they did not. No, and you know, Israel did the thing where they challenged jurisdiction in the dumbest grounds ever. You know, South Africa didn't open their email. There was no dispute. I'm not even going to so sovereign citizen, the... but for <laughs> on the on the national well, that level. That was the U.S. The U.S. v. Nicaragua. Oh, okay. That was sovereign. <laughs> um, but uh, but um, uh, no, um. It was just like there's no dispute because they didn't they didn't email us properly. It was something very dumb. Um, and then that was the man, the wig who had his papers shuffled. <laughs> Someone um, shuffled my papers. And it's like no, you shuffled your papers. <laughs> like it's not even taking responsibility for the fact yes. that your speech is out of order. It's like someone shuffled oh, my papers. Hamas, Hamas someone shuffled my papers. papers. Hamas has dug a tunnel into the court and shuffled my papers. I, uh, he's British aristocrat. I think he probably more was like blaming his servants or something, you know. My man servant shuffled my papers. Uh, but no, um, and then they had these pictures of like a handgun in an incubator. You know, they had this argument where it was like the casualty counts are wrong. They probably include combatants. Also, they include civilians who were assisting the combatants. And if there are any remaining civilians left, they were also legitimate targets. Or, or my favorite, Hamas killed them. Yeah, like Hamas is killing Palestinians. Hamas is blowing up hospitals. We don't know Israel did this. Well, on this issue of jurisdiction, uh, a U.S. district judge in California tossed out a lawsuit that was brought by the Center for Constitutional Rights and other groups trying to compel the Biden administration to comply with the genocide, the genocide convention and stop supplying the Israeli military with weapons and support. Um, and the judge was very sympathetic with the case and cited the ICJ ruling in saying that it is 
plausible that a genocide is being committed, but uh the executive non- the executive has a lot of leeway when it comes to foreign policy um it so doesn't see are, does does it is there any avenue domestically to compel the Biden administration to stop assisting this genocide or well, is it going to have to come from the outside through something like ICJ, which also won't be enforceable, but at least subjects the U.S. to this sort of scrutiny that Israel's just now being subjected to. So as a longtime observer of these lawsuits to sort of enforce the War Powers Act, uh, hold Caterpillar accountable for the death of Rachel Corey, stop Obama from assassinating U.S. citizens, um, I, I do, I do want to say that I don't think any other outcome legally than than the one that was was um given last night was expected but what did surprise me was that the judge allowed a hearing a very unusual hearing to be held at the non-merit stage where people were allowed to talk about the definition of genocide where palestinians were allowed to to testify like like that happens at the trial level it it doesn't happen at the is this a political question doctrine or not level and that really surprised me and i was really surprised that the judge made these comments that it is plausible obviously you know where does that get us nowhere but i would have expected the judge to have thrown the case out not allowed for that type of hearing and to not have made those comments so yeah. it it is really surprising to me that you have a judge who is doing legally what everyone expected them to do. There's people tried to challenge the Vietnam War in court. People tried to challenge the Contra aid in court like that. Courts never go for that. Um, uh, I will say that a district court did issue an injunction against the bombing of Cambodia, Cambodia, but it was reversed on appeal before the injunction could even take effect. So. William O. Douglas want to hear William Douglas want to hear the case though. My favorite Supreme Court justice, William Douglas. Yes. Well, why wouldn't South Africa bring a case at this point? I mean, maybe there are political things at play, but against the US given and ask for provisional measures to stop supplying arms uh to this to this campaign given how sympathetic the ICJ was to its case against Israel and how clearly the U.S. is, you know, there's receipts for the weapons that are going toward this conflict. Um, and have the emails been sent? Have the emails been uh, replied to? Has uh, you answered your own question when you use the word political. Okay, so, I mean, does the U.S. just have more political clout than Israel? is a lot dicier than going against Israel directly, especially when you already have, you know, I mean, the U.S. controls the IMF and the World Bank. They control the loans and things like that. Israel does not. Yeah. And I guess we're already seeing how the U.S. has responded to this verdict or this action by the ICJ by defunding UNRWA. Yeah. Yeah. Which, like, I have been around since the Bush years. I've been around since the Iraq War. That is the most depressing thing I've witnessed yet was defunding 
the agency that gives humanitarian assistance to a people who have been blockaded for 16 years, who are being bombed everywhere they go, who have no means of subsistence. And we have this court saying, let in the subsistence. This is clearly gen. I'm sorry plausibly genocidal, that you are deliberately bringing about conditions that not sustain life. And the fucking Biden administration chimes in with, yeah, we'll cut the aid. Yeah, I, I, and then I, the on the same day, on the same day, I've, I've been seeing a lot of and I know that Twitter isn't necessarily the best place for legal analysis, but I, I feel like I've seen my legal analysis. Well, from. yeah, I mean, I, I, I think these uh, claims are being made from more reputable accounts that in the context of the ICJ's decision that this puts any party that withholds funding from UNRWA in more of a legal precarious situation with regards to their um, their compliance with the Genocide Convention. If Francis Boyle has made that, that case, uh, he pioneered the use of the Genocide Convention for the ICJ the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territories either strongly hinted at that or directly made that case. You are correct that legal scholars are, you know, it's really bad. Um, and then, I don't know, it's just so depressing. I mean, I, I think this is the most depressed I've been about something going on in the world for some time. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, when you look at the comparisons to the bombs dropped in Gaza versus historically Iraq. destructive events, Dresden, you know, bombing of, um, was it the, not, I don't want to get uh, my bombs confused, but they they dropped more bombs on, on Gaza in a week than they usually do in a, did in a year in Afghanistan. You know, the civilian casualty rates are off the charts for, uh, you know, comparable uh, I, contemporary I, I, conflicts. And I mean, this has only been going on for what? For four months? 107 days, yeah. No, I saw somewhere they dropped more bombs than the first three years of Iraq and like shock and awe was up until this point the worst war crime of the 21st century. I mean, shock and awe where we went in and pulverized a country that was already wasting under U.S. sanctions that had been bombed back into the Stone Age in the early 90s, according to the U.N., and then sanctioned so the people could not rebuild, so the children were dying, so the people were starving, so there were no medicine. And they would do these every bombings every three days to completely destroy the civil air defense system and then just go in and massively carpet bomb them in order to achieve total domination whatever whatever the, the words were i mean that was the worst war crime of the 21st century it has been surpassed by this horrible bombing of gaza which is the bombing of an open-air prison these people are in the most densely populated populated place on earth they are not allowed to leave they are besieged by the land the air the sea they cannot go anywhere the reason why they're densely populated is because all of the people who were were, were chased 
out of their country with ethnic cleansing and genocide like the Dier Yassin massacre. The vast majority of them ended up in the Gaza Strip. The majority of people in Gaza are unwar registered refugees. So you have chased people out of a country through ethnic cleansing, through terrorism. You have put them in a tiny strip of land. You have blockaded them in. You have locked them in. And now are you dropping more bombs than Dresden on them? It is hideous, it is horrible, it is evil, and there should be a Nuremberg prosecution of the Israeli government, of the British government, of the U.S. government, and everybody who participated in this sickening genocide. Journalists, too, I should add. Put Biden in the Hague. Put Biden in the Hague. Of course, then the U.S. military would uh, invade the Hague. But uh, that, uh, we can get into that in in another episode, uh, Chip. You'll have to come All on. All the wars and... I'm unwilling to fight. It's an invasion of the Hague to rescue Joe Biden. <laughs> oh, I'm willing to fight that war on the side of the Hague. <laughs> no comment. No comment Chip. on treason. Chip, it's good to have you back on the show. Thanks for giving us uh, all the uh, now have to info. save the Muppet Theater. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Put on one last show to, to save the Muppet that's, Theater. That's right. Uh, why don't you uh, tell the audience what you're up to and where they can find uh, more well, Chip Gibbons? I'm on, I'm on Twitter at ChipGibbons89, but every week someone writes to me telling me I no longer see your tweets. I think you're shadow banned. I tend to think people who say they're shadow banned are narcissistic, delusional, and paranoid, but I tweeted out I think yeah. I'm shadow banned. And no, no I'm shadow banned too. You narcissistic jackass, no one likes your tweets. Which, to me, proved I was shadow banned because someone would have clearly yelled at me that I was a narcissistic jackass had I not been. So if you'd like to see my tweets uh, at ShipGibbons89, I I have a substack like everyone else, but I haven't updated it in a year. I've been writing heavily for Jacobin. I was writing a weekly column for Kevin Gastolos at the center for a while. Uh, The big thing, though, is I am working on the FBI book. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I get 500 pages of documents a month about um, FBI surveillance of world bank protesters, mm. like just days before 9-11, the FBI Well, wait, wait, listen, Chip, we're about to run out of time. Okay. We're literally right, seconds right, away. All right, but all right. Goodbye, everyone. You can find Chip online. Bye. He's on Blue Sky, too. Looking forward to the book. I am. Big time. Yes. Thank you. Thanks again to Chip. I wanted to make sure we've got Chip's info right because he got cut off at the end there. Chip Gibbons is the policy director for Defending Rights and Dissent. He's currently working on a history of FBI political surveillance, the Imperial Bureau, forthcoming book for Verso. And as a journalist, he has covered for Jacobin the Espionage Act proceedings against journalist Julian Assange and drone whistleblower Daniel Hale and these historic ICJ proceedings brought against Israel under the Genocide Convention. Well, the show is almost over. One last thing to do. Interns, bring out the garbage can. Oh, wow. Oh, that thing fucking reeks. Oh, my God, it's awful. Oh, terrible. Oh. Cool. Okay, right there, intern. It's good, right there, interns. Right there is good. Thank you. Oof. For this edition of the Garbage Can, we're headed back to the International Court of Justice. 
All garbage candidates are plucked straight from South Africa's case against Israel, all accused of inciting genocide. But only one can get the can today, unless we decide to amend the rules and throw them all in later. Let's just begin at the top. Garbage candidate number one, it's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Reading now directly from South Africa's brief, quote, On the 16th of October, 2023, in a formal address to the Israeli Knesset, Netanyahu described the situation as a, quote, struggle between the children of light and the children of darkness, between humanity and the law of the jungle, a dehumanizing theme to which he returned on various occasions, including on the 3rd of November, 2023, in a letter to Israeli soldiers and officers also published on the platform X, formerly Twitter, the letter asserted that, quote, this is the war between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. We will not let up on our mission until the light overcomes the darkness. The good will defeat the extreme evil that threatens us in the entire world. The South African brief continues that, quote, on the 28th of October, 2023, as Israeli forces prepared their land invasion of Gaza, the prime minister invoked the biblical story of the total destruction of of Amalek by the Israelites, stating, quote, You must remember what Amalek has done to you, says our Holy Bible, and we do remember. The Prime Minister referred again to Amalek in the letter sent on the 3rd of November 2023 to Israeli soldiers and officers. The relevant biblical passage reads as follows, quote, Now go, attack Amalek, and prescribe all that belongs to him, spare no one, but kill all alike, men and women, infants and sucklings, oxen and sheep, camels and asses. That's the prime minister, folks. Hmm. Garbage candidate number two. How about the president of Israel, Isaac Herzog? Reading again from the brief, quote, On the 12th of October, 2023, President Isaac Herzog made clear that Israel was not distinguishing between militants and civilians in Gaza, stating in a press conference to foreign media in relation to Palestinians in Gaza, over one million of whom are children, quote, It's an entire nation out there that is responsible. It's not true, this rhetoric about civilians not aware, not involved. It's absolutely not true. And we will fight until we break their backbone. The president, folks. <laughs> what a prick. Liberal Zionism for you, as, as noted previously in the show. Garbage candidate number three, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant. This is from the brief. Quote, on October 9th, 2023, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant in an Israeli army situation update advised that Israel was imposing a complete siege on Gaza. No electricity, no food, no water, no fuel. Everything is closed. Quote, we are fighting human animals and we are acting accordingly. He also informed troops on the Gaza border that he had, quote, released all the restraints, stating in terms that, quote, Gaza won't return to what it was before. We will eliminate everything. If it doesn't take one day, it will take a week. It will take weeks or even months. We will reach all places. He further announced that Israel was moving to a, quote, full-scale response and that he had, quote, removed every restriction on Israeli forces. 
And of course, yeah, we've seen the, these, the consequences of removing those restraints. <laughs> yeah, these these are the actually the children of darkness, it turns out. And we continue. Garbage candidate number four, National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir. From the brief, quote, On November 10th, 2023, Itamar Ben-Gavir clarified the government's position in a televised address stating, quote, To be clear, when we say that Hamas should be destroyed, it also means those who celebrate, those who support, and those who hand out candy. They're all terrorists, and they should also be destroyed. Next up, garbage candidate number five, it's the Minister of Heritage, Amichai Eloheinu. Come on, you're Jewish. You know it's Amichai. (laughs) You're right. Sorry. Amichai Eloheinu. Uh, This is the Minister of Heritage we're talking about now. We're not talking about national security ministers or defense people. From the brief, quote, on November 1st, 2023, Amichai Eluhenu posted on Facebook, quote, the north of the Gaza Strip, more beautiful than ever, everything is blown up and flattened, simply a pleasure for the eyes. We must talk about the day after. In my mind, we will hand over lots to all those who fought for Gaza over the years and to those evicted from Gush Katif. That's a former Israeli settlement. He later argued against humanitarian aid as, quote, we wouldn't hand the Nazis humanitarian aid, and, quote, there is no such thing as uninvolved civilians in Gaza. He also posited a nuclear attack on the Gaza Strip. Yeah, That's all these the, comments about there being no innocent civilians, how they're basically all Nazis, they're talking about themselves. <laughs> Uh, Turn on your monitor? (laughs) Yes, turn on your monitor, uh, minister. Finally, garbage cannon number six, Israeli Army Reservist Ezra Yachin. This is the guy who was referenced by Chip earlier in the show. This is from the brief quote on October 11th, 2023. 95-year-old Israeli Army Reservist Ezra Yachin, a veteran of the Der Yassin Massacre. Wait, Chip said basically this word for word. Yeah, yeah, he already basically said this, but uh, this was the guy who uh, advised people to shoot their neighbors uh, and to kill everyone. So, yeah, those are your garbage candidates uh, this week. Um, I move to amend the rules and we just throw them all in the garbage can. Including that 95-year-old piece of shit. Yeah, we can't um, actually throw the state of Israel itself in the garbage can of history, so why not? Let's do it. Uh, Israeli genocide heirs, you are going in the garbage can. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, going in the garbage can. How sad. All right. uh, That is the show. But before we leave today, SK, you uh, you have some words to say. Uh, yes. Unfortunately, this is my last episode of Sentinel Radio. I have taken a job that starts soon, and I'm going to have to step away from this show indefinitely. Running the Sentinel with Sam and with listener support has been a joy and an honor. 
but it's the right time for me to be making this move. I'm sorry it's so abrupt. Sam mentioned earlier how our recent podcast production schedule has been reminiscent of Harry and Meghan. But in another way, I feel like Prince Harry because the Sentinel community is like a royal family to me and I am leaving you, except not because you're racist. So thanks for listening. Like I said, it's been a tremendous joy and an honor. And keep listening to whatever Sam pumps out next. I will definitely be. And keep watching the skies. Mm. Well, uh, thanks uh, for that, Sam. It has been a joy and an honor. And I don't like closing the book on things, you know, because you have a job and this is a... a, uh, a conflict that you can't do while you have this job, but who knows, you could stumble into some fuck you money and be like, you know what? I'm going to go back to podcasting now. I don't need this job. Uh, in which case this will always be here for you on, on the previous episode. I talked about how the Sentinel will never die. So, uh, then you're coming out on the next one and saying, well, uh, this is your last episode, but I, I feel obligated to ensure it doesn't die. So I'm going to keep producing some content on this channel um, might have some revolving guest hosts, probably some more longer form interviews, some special reports. Uh, if I find that I can't keep it going, I'll shut down the Patreon. But um, for now, uh, the point, the the idea, the plan is to keep Sentinel going, keep producing uh, episodes at a faster rate than we have been over the last few months, and uh, we'll see we'll see what comes next. And as always, uh, message me, reach out if. Uh, there's anything you'd like to see uh, for the future of the Sentinel. All right. Well, uh, Sam, we'll, uh, I'll see you outside the podcasting world. That's right. That's the show. Uh, I'm not in D.C. anymore. Uh, SK still is, but he's not doing the show anymore. So we'll come up with a new tagline for the next episode. <laughs> see you then.